millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here comes the story of Hurricane. The man the authorities came to That's how I first heard about the story of Reuben Hurricane Carter, Bob Dylan's song protesting the innocence of the boxer who was imprisoned for 18 years for murder before finally getting cleared and freed. There's also a Hollywood film called The Hurricane starring Denzel Washington. So early in the morning of Friday, June the 17th, 1966, two African-American men walked into the Lafayette Bar and Grill in Patterson, New Jersey, and shot four white people, killing three of them. Reuben Carter and his friend John Artis were picked up by police shortly afterwards, then convicted of the killings. But throughout all his years in jail, Carter insisted he was innocent and had been framed by a corrupt and racist police force. Carter himself died back in 2014. But in the hurricane tapes, sports reporter Steve Crossman and producer Joel Hammer share a treasure trove of 40 hours of old, previously unheard interviews of him speaking about the case. This old, scratchy audio and interviews with just about everyone involved, police, the victims' families and Carter's contemporaries, tell the twisting, compelling story of the case and of the sometimes less than heroic hurricane. I'll speak to Steve in just a moment about how he managed to get hold of all these old tapes. But first, here's some of episode one, The Making of Reuben Carter. At the age of 11, Reuben claims to have stabbed a man. He said he was just protecting a friend from a paedophile. So I have to mention two things here. First, criminal records, which I've seen, suggest he was 14, not 11, and that he actually assaulted this man with a bottle. And I don't know if that's nitpicking or not, but it's an indication that everything Reuben says in these tapes, we shouldn't read as gospel. But regardless of the weapon that was used, the authorities were not sympathetic to his claims of heroically defending a friend. They sent him to a remote place where the metal arch over the gate still says, State Home for Boys. But there was nothing homely about it. It was, and still is today, a juvenile prison built just after the Civil War known as Jamesburg. When I went to Jamesburg at 11 years old, my father came to see me once. And he said, I'm not coming back here anymore. He said, I'm not coming back here anymore. And he never came back there again. Reuben was alone in a scene from Lord of the Flies. He later said it was a place where eight-year-old kids became the prey of 15-year-old killers and rapists and boys for whom crime had become the only way of life. There weren't many guards. The boys ruled their own blocks. The top dogs were called line sergeants. And the line sergeants were usually the two toughest guys, and they had complete rule of the prisoners. Uh, If they want to beat somebody up, they'd beat them up. 
because that's how they rule. And I always wanted to be a line sergeant. And he became one. He mastered his environment. Even the most vicious children deferred to him. He said that at the end of every day, he was just thankful he was still alive and hadn't had to kill someone for the privilege. In the end, he escaped. He ran 100 kilometres in just two days. But he wanted to put more distance between himself and James Burke. In 1954, at the age of 17, he joined the army. For the young man at the peak of his physical energy, athletics, in one form or another, is a major interest. The Army sports programs are unprecedented in size and scope. Every athletic endeavour imaginable is covered under the special services... Here, Reuben Carter's story brightens a little bit. And as with a lot of good stories, it starts with a few too many drinks. Reuben was posted to Germany. Walking back to the barracks one boozy night he stumbled upon a gym where army boxers were working out. Drunkenly, Reuben bragged to the officer in charge that he could beat any guy there. The officer laughed in his face. Come back in 24 hours, he said, when you've sobered up. The army gives a man the opportunity to develop athletic skills through competition. The successful army athlete may go on to international competitions. So he did. According to Carter... The next day, he stepped into the ring with a real tough guy, the all-army champion, and Reuben flattened him. It was at that moment, with the army's best boxer lying at his feet, that he finally had a significant moment of self-realisation. After searching in strife for so many years, he finally knew what he'd been created for. Boxing. For Reuben, knowing yourself and escaping your past, they were two different things. Well, when he got out of the army, I was living at his mom's house. So he and I stayed together. His cousin, Johnny. We'd run the streets, you know, chase girls, drink, the whole nine yards. He didn't have a job. Eventually, he got caught ciphering gas to put in my car while I was asleep. He knew my car could start without a key. Make a long story short, the police woke me up and asked me where my car was. And I said, across the street. They said, no, we have it. When I got down to the police station, I got a chance to look at Ruben, and he says to me, I stole your car. This was minor compared to what was to come. He later robbed an old lady at knife point and was sentenced to four years in prison. And there, behind bars, Reuben Carter's army epiphany began to take form. He started boxing more and more. He soon built up such a name for himself. He was able to secure an agent while he was still in prison. His first professional fight came the day after he got out. It was 1961, he was 24, and the boxing world quickly took notice. He was extraordinarily strong. 
as a fighter. I mean, you just look at his body and it looks like, you know, an anatomy chart with muscles on top of muscles. I mean, he was an amazing physical specimen. Boxing writer Mike Silver saw several of his fights. Reuben Carter was like this dark villain you would see in a horror movie. And he played up that image in the publicity for Reuben Carter. It was played up that he was an, a former convict. And the promoters wanted that mentioned. Prison must have really maybe turned him into an animal or something. I mean, he had the persona of a guy that was angry. This angry guy was becoming a local celebrity. And that just swelled Ruben's ego. And it began to draw people to him. A professional boxer needs an entourage. And Ron Lipton became part of it. He was an amateur fighter brave enough to spar with Ruben. He still remembers their first meeting. He had a green iridescent suit, which is in vogue at the time, and a skinny iridescent tie. You know, it was unbelievable. This spectacular-looking figure, and he had, a, you know, the drooping Mandarin mustache, and he had a black derby on. And I said, look at this guy. This is so, He's so cool. So he walked over, and he says, I understand you want to meet me. And I said, uh, yeah, you looking for another white boy to beat up? And he stared at me, and, like, he was glowering at me for a second, and then he busted up laughing. And I, I liked him right away. <laughs> Not that Today, Ron teaches a boxing class at a college a couple of hours' drive north of New York. We sat in on one of his lectures as he strolls back and forth across the gym. He is in incredible shape, not just for a man of his age, for any man. He's got a white goatee and a black beanie pulled over his head. He's kind of intimidating, straddling a chair, studying me with his arms folded. But his luminous yellow jumper says more about his character. It's as bright as any suit Carter could possibly have owned. And on the back is Ruben's face. All right, time. This is what I want you to do. Remember I showed you that chop shot that Hurricane Carter uses? What's it like to take a punch from him then when you started sparring with this guy? It just was like being paralyzed. Some guys would knock you cold. Ruben, like, would paralyze you with a punch. And if you're hit with it solid, if you don't twist your head or move, uh, it was like your jaw being driven through the back of your skull. Uh, it was all like half seconds, half inches. And if he zigged when you should have zagged, he'd knock your brains out. Former New Jersey cop Fred Hogan also stepped into the ring with Ruben. When I was sparring with him, I learned rather rapidly that boxing was something that I did not want to do with any regularity. So I, I admired him as a fan. I admired the training to bring him to that level where you could have all of that, the fury, the, the intensity, the talent, the ability. And yet when he hit somebody, he'd walk away because he knew that when we're getting up. When you actually watch him in the ring, uh, did he earn that nickname, Hurricane? What, what was it about the idea of a hurricane which mirrors Ruben's style? Well, he was animalistic in the ring because of the fury that he would bring on you. His movements were overwhelming and very graceful. He brought on fury. He brought on a hurricane. Throughout my career... I trained too hard, and I demanded that my sparring partners be in as good a physical shape as I was in in order to uh, test me. In fact, Reuben couldn't even find a fellow middleweight that he felt was good enough, 
so he sparred with heavyweights instead. And not just anybody. By 1962, he was training with the heavyweight champion of the world, Sonny Liston. Sonny and I ended up sparring one another. So we used to have wars in that gym, man. I'd be fucking on wow. And, and in order to keep him keep me off, he had to whack me back, you know? And after we finished the sparring match, my headgear was full of blood. But this guy hit me so hard that I was bleeding out of my ears. I mean, he was the number one heavyweight contender that this man was about ready to kill. Steve Crossman's a BBC sports reporter and the presenter of the Hurricane Tapes. When I came up with this idea, which was something like August 2017, I wanted to make like a one-hour radio documentary and it was going to be the 50th anniversary of Reuben Carter's first conviction in 1967. And the idea was we would talk about all the stuff he did after he got out of prison, which has never really been covered in great depth before, you know, stories like how he managed to have a wrongfully convicted man freed when Reuben was on his deathbed. He wrote this letter to the district attorney saying, my dying wish is that this man who's been imprisoned for over 30 years for a murder that he didn't commit be freed. And after Reuben died, this man, David McCallum, eventually was freed. But the existence of the tapes we only found out about when we were in New York speaking to a good friend of, of this guy, David McCallum, the man that Reuben freed. And he's an author. His name's Ken Klonsky. And he wrote a book with Reuben Carter. It's called Eye of the Hurricane. And he recorded a load of tapes when he made the book. But two key pieces of information about that. One, the information from the tapes that went into the book is all on this one topic, really, of... Ruben's psychological journey in prison. So there's a lot of stuff in there about, you know, he feels like he kind of almost learned to see through walls and how he thinks in some ways he's quite similar to the Dalai Lama. It's so spiritual. And I'm not saying that's not interesting at all. But to me, as a journalist, there were reams and reams and hours and hours of material, which is far more interesting, which is specifically about the case. So many new pieces of information are revealed through these tapes. And Ken said to us, oh, yeah, so I recorded these tapes with Ruben. And I think they're with a university in Boston. And we found this university. I say found, it wasn't very difficult. We looked them up on Google. Um, <laughs> and we called them and they said, we haven't got these tapes. We've never heard of them. And it took a long time, but we managed to track them back from the university to the person who was supposed to send them on, but didn't, who was another one of Ruben's friends. And I spent quite a long time talking to him. Um, and he said he, he didn't have these tapes. He had no idea what had happened to them. And eventually he called me maybe like a month later and said, oh, listen, I've been cleaning out my basement and I don't believe it, but I found these Reuben Carter tapes and he sent them on to us. And, you know, we had to get all 40 hours transcribed, which was no small task for whoever had to do it. Wow. Um, and yeah, but the first time we listened to them, you know, we just knew. And, and as soon as as soon as we listened to them, we thought, well, we can't just make an hour documentary about this story. We've got to go out and make a podcast. When they laughed at me. The only sound they'd hear in reply would be the sound of my fist whistling through the air. I would attack anybody that laughed at me. Anybody, anywhere. It didn't make any difference. What did it feel like when you got that phone call to say, yeah, I've, I found the tapes, I didn't send them anywhere? It was like winning the podcast lottery. Um, <laughs> well, it was weird because it was almost a sense of nerves because once we knew they existed, it was a good... 10 days before we could actually hear them. And in that 10 days, it was almost difficult to sleep because you're thinking, 
this could be amazing. And it's funny, you know, we, we sent them all off to be transcribed. So we didn't listen to much of them before they were sent away by us to a, to a company that did the transcribing for us. But we listened to the first 10 minutes of one tape and we were quite worried at first because the first five minutes were just the Bob Dylan song Hurricane played and then repeated three times over. Mm -hmm. So we got to about 20 minutes into the tape and all we'd done is heard the Bob Dylan song three times. So that was a concern. But then suddenly this voice came through, cutting through the darkness in this kind of beautiful, old school, you know, just good enough quality to hear voice. And, you know, I think the beauty of them is you're hearing Ruben in his own words. You know, it's not like he's doing an interview. He's just talking to his mate. And how much more candid are you when you're talking to a friend than when you're talking to a journalist? If anybody put their hands on me in anger, I don't care who it is. My father, the preacher, or the police. I don't give a who it is. If you put your hand on me in anger, I'm... <laughs> you know, and that's exactly what I did. Yeah, it kind of captures those unguarded moments, doesn't it? He, he, you really feel like you're getting the full account. And, it, and it's that warts and all thing. It's not someone presenting a sanitised vision of who they are and what they were thinking. It, you know, he's pretty seems to be pretty open and honest about his faults and his foibles as well. And, and I think he had to be for us to have done the the story that we've done because to do the podcast we needed so much information so many stories to be able to tell as part of our wider story and Ruben had to do that himself you know just from a framing perspective as a journalist I wouldn't be comfortable with making a series on somebody if we weren't hearing from that person I don't know what it was like to be a young black boy growing up in Patterson New Jersey in the 1930s and 1940s, and I would never pretend to. So you have to have Reuben. You have to have his close friends. You have to have the lawyers from the case. You have to have eyewitnesses. You have to have the families of the victims. We had to get all of these things. And if I was amazed by one thing in this whole process, it's just how many people, you know, more than 50 years later are still alive. Um, There's an incredible number of people who are still alive. And... There are so many different voices in this podcast, and I think that's probably one of the things I'm most proud about is, you know, there are no talking heads in this. You won't suddenly hear me in the next episode say, and here's John Smith, who has been covering the story for 10 years. You know, everybody in our podcast knew Reuben Carter or worked with Reuben Carter or was directly involved in the case. It's all primary sources. And there's still clearly quite profoundly affected by what happened way back in 1966, aren't they? I don't think it's something that anybody could forget, is it? I mean, and particularly, you know, speaking for example from the point of view of the, the, the families of the victims, because they don't have closure, because in 1985, Judge Hanley Sarakin overturned Reuben Carter's conviction and there was no extra. You know, nobody else has ever been arrested since Reuben Carter was released. Nobody was has been charged. Nobody has been investigated since Reuben Carter was freed. And as our series continues, um, I'm not very good at the sort of just giving away too much, not giving away an excessive amount, so I'll do my best here. 
But, you know, this isn't just telling the existing story, but being the first people to tell the, the true story. You know, this is also about trying to work out who did it. And you can't preclude Reuben Carter and John Artis from that. You know, I speak to John Artis three or four times a week on WhatsApp. And I know that he knows that I'm making a podcast series which questions whether or not he's innocent. And he's OK with that, yeah. which is a remarkable thing, really, to, to be constantly in contact with someone whose entire reputation kind of rests in the palm of your hands. But we have done more investigating on other characters, some of whom have never, ever been mentioned in the public domain before. And by the time we get to the end of this series, you know, there will be at least one person who we will be saying, look, we think this guy was one of the shooters that night. Steve Crossman, the host of The Hurricane Tapes, produced by Joel Hammer for the BBC World Service. Thanks for listening to the podcast hour from RNZ. If you're finding it helpful to find new stuff to listen to, then please do consider rating or reviewing us with as many stars as you can manage wherever you get your podcasts from and tell your friends and family about us too. And if you're writing a review, then do let us know what you like about the show or how it could be improved. So if you'd like to hear longer clips, more interviews with the people making the shows that we feature, and if four shows is about the right number to highlight each week, that kind of stuff, it would be really helpful to know. Thanks a lot. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.